0: This is the current federal tax developments for the week of August the 2nd, 2021. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your state society of CPAs. I'm Ed Zollers and this week we're going to take a look at a number of developments that took place but one of which we're not really going to take a huge look at right now which you might be surprised but the problem is we just don't know a bunch about it yet will be the infrastructure bill, the bipartisan bill. While the Senate had agreed to essentially the bill at this point in time, uh, it was still effectively being drafted. There is a 56-page summary that you can read and that you may have found online, but not really a whole lot else we know about it, which presents a problem because, as I know from experience, details matter in tax, and that means that I need to see the bill, First, to make sure really the 56 pages explain everything that's in it. And then secondly, to make sure that despite what Congress thinks, the bill actually works the way they're saying it works. And if you don't want to know the example of that, let's go back to the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act and the 15-year life for qualified improvement property. That it turns out, oops, in the actual bill, didn't get drafted to be 15-year life. And that took a while before we finally got a fix for that in the CARES Act. So, bottom line, even if that summary does tell us exactly what they mean to enact, uh, what matters more than what they mean to enact always is what they do enact. So we're going to take a wait and wait-and-see attitude to see how it goes. But based on that, one thing I will mention is right now it appears there is only a single tax issue. And that will be reporting for cryptocurrency or, I guess, in IRS speak, virtual currency. And what they're going to add to that is they are going to essentially uh, treat those who are dealing in cryptocurrency. And it's tough to know the definitions. I've seen a few uh, posts that suggest the definition would be super broad. I'm not sure it could be as broad as some have suggested because I've kind of taken a look at it, but obviously it's not, you know, people in the cryptocurrency arena are not reacting well to this. I'm not surprised, but nevertheless, it would at the very least make all of the exchanges be required to report like a brokerage, meaning it would be more like a 1099B reporting for covered securities. So they would have to report sales prices, Each sale, sales price and basis, assuming that they have information on the basis because the currency was acquired while being held in that account. So your client just went and purchased their Bitcoin or whatever cryptocurrency they're buying on the exchange in question. And then, you know, a few months later, they sold it. Or it was transferred in from another exchange and you would have the similar rules you have for brokerages where they would have to transfer over the basis information when there was a transfer from a Another from one exchange to another, they would have to transfer over the basis information and that would become part of the reporting. Now, obviously, one of the keys is going to be effective date for something like this. If you remember, we did it for brokers. It took a while for them to phase it in and it went in parts. And I have to assume we'd see a similar adjustment here where there would be a phase in period. They would also add one other thing for cryptocurrency, which shouldn't surprise anybody. That remember that, that whole bit we've done for years where if somebody pays more than ten thousand dollars in cash, you have to file the reporting on that with the IRS. So, somebody comes in, you know, decides they're going to buy that Harley and they're going to give your client, who's a dealer, you know, cash for the purchase more than ten grand in cash, or they've structured deals to try to avoid, so they would pay for this thing by walking in on four different days and handing you $2,500 or $3,000 each time. Yeah, that you have to report that to the IRS. The same would be true of payments in cryptocurrency. Now, the obvious reason to do that for anybody who really wants to figure this out is to essentially give the IRS some leverage, shall we say, against those who might accept cryptocurrency if they're not filing the report we discover that fact they failed to file it that they would have faced some pressure including potential criminal pressure and that would force the reporting making it a little more interesting now obviously we will cover more details here if we get actual bill text issued which may come out by the time you hear this but we will probably do our coverage next week at the earliest and also i do like to see the bill actually passed in the house And signed by the president, as we discovered at the end of to end of 2020, uh, even when you think everything's go, uh, you may get a monkey wrench in the work. If you don't remember back at the end of 2020, we thought we had a deal. The House and Senate passed the deal. And then suddenly the president balked on signing the deal. And while he finally did sign the deal, uh, that was one of those things where, yeah, you just never it's never over till it's over. So be aware, you know, we'll keep an eye on that. Uh, Probably if the president has committed to sign and it's passed, I'll talk about it. But remember, quote, committed to sign doesn't really mean he has to sign. He could get cold feet and back out. You know, basically what we saw at the end of 2020. Well, backed out and then came back in. So whatever happens. So we'll keep an eye on that. Now, what else really did happen this week that we can actually talk about? Well, we have a few things. The Small Business Administration, I know you guys just love the Paycheck Protection Program. Well, the SBA announced what were effectively three different changes to the Paycheck Protection Program. Uh, the theory is this, in basically the idea is to help simplify matters, is kind of what they're going to do here. So there'll be a couple of s- opposed simplifications although they are apparently contingent on your bank deciding they want to go the simplified route. There also will be some relief on people who maybe get a decision from the SBA, bank and SBA, they don't like on forgiveness. They file an appeal. We will get a delay of time before they have to start paying back the loan, waiting to see how the appeal comes out. That said, at least per the SBA appeals process and what we've seen in terms of what was covered by the guidance that was given, that probably shouldn't take that long to happen. But yeah, about 30 to 45 days apparently would be the time frame to get that done. It is a much more rapid process, uh, whether that's for good or bad, than the process we see for uh, tax appeals and that kind of background. So it's there. We'll talk about a case where the IRS lost, attempting to challenge a taxpayer who was claiming a business deduction for expenses related to obtaining an MBA. We'll talk a little bit about that, how it works. In this particular case, the taxpayer, for reasons that aren't entirely clear, I think I know why, but in any event took it as an employee business expense, which obviously is not a way you could take it now, uh, but it's still An issue that would impact you if you have clients who are reimbursing employees for training, uh, and that can include related parties such as owners for training, under an accountable reimbursement plan, or obviously for the self-employed. The rules are still fine. They could still take it. We also had the IRS this week come out and expand the paid leave credit. Uh, They finally added a Category 6 Item. If you remember, ever since the CARES Act started, we always had, we discussed the payroll tax credit, actually this goes back to Family First Coronavirus Relief Act, predates the CARES Act. We always talked about the fact that there was a sixth category for which you could qualify for the credit, but that we had never been told anything that fit the sixth category, which is things substantially similar to the categories that do qualify. We have finally had an addition. That is for substantially similar, as we'll discover, it will be related to taking your related party, normally somebody in your household, to obtain their vaccine or caring for that member of your household or relative who is experiencing side effects from the vaccine. That will become a covered, on the two-thirds category, a covered category for employer-provided leave. We'll also talk about an email from the IRS on the Bipartisan Budget Act Centralized Partnership audit regime that talks about issues with the imputed adjustment calculation. Now, I want to discuss this not because it's terribly surprising, the conclusion I come to, but I have found just way too many CPAs who are totally clueless on the Bipartisan Budget Act's audit regime Thinking, well, my partnerships never have gotten audited. And that works great right up until they discover, oh, we have a problem last year. You know, the client forgot to tell us about this asset they bought. So we need to go back and amend last year's return. And that's when suddenly reality rears its ugly head because things are going to get very, very, very messy. And the one thing you cannot do is simply amend the prior year return. Fix the prior year individual uh, 1040s unless the partnership was eligible to opt out and opted out of BBA. And I have found that way too often, and I've run into multiple cases online uh, where CPAs are trying to make changes, and suddenly they discover that thing that oh, that only applies to big partnerships. Suddenly, they discover they should have paid a little more attention about that 2015 law change, which had a delayed effective date, and, but it's effective now. And so we'll talk a little bit about that issue. Finally, we'll also discuss a case we actually discussed back in 2019. November of 2019, we talked about a case where a taxpayer was both the beneficiary and the owner of a foreign trust. And had failed to file the necessary 3520, 3520A for a rather large distribution that also got everything out of the trust. And the court had determined that the actual penalty, the only penalty the district court determined the IRS could assess, was a 5% penalty for the failure by the owner of the trust uh, to report the amount of the, you know, essentially the amount of what was in the trust, as opposed to the beneficiary distribution reporting. So we're going to talk a little bit about the fact that the Second Circuit did not agree with that. Because, by the way, the failure to report the trust is a 5% penalty on the ending balance, which was zero. So effectively, 5% of zero in this case was nothing. The IRS was trying to assess the 35% tax on distributions that the recipient fails to report, and that 35 uh, percent, dist- that 35 percent tax, uh, obviously would have been the more significant. Would be the actually the tax or the penalty in question. So the Second Circuit did reverse that case from November of 2019. Remember, slightly before the pandemic. Give give you a time frame of where that was. So let's start out with this change by the SBA. And we have Interim Final Rule RIN 3245-A879, the official long title. I love the SBA's titles. They go on forever. Business Loan Program Temporary Changes, Paycheck Protection Program, COVID Revenue Reduction Score, Direct Borrower Forgiveness Process, and Appeals Deferment. This was issued on July the 28th of 2021. Now, one of the big things out of this, but the thing to remember is your bank has to agree to do this. But what's going to happen is we are going to have an SBA hosted process application for forgiveness. And what that means is that the SBA will be hosting the platform on which your client can apply for forgiveness. So, okay, great. Now, the one problem is your bank does have to opt into this, and you have to meet other criteria. So, for your client to be able to apply for forgiveness directly to the SBA, the following things have to be true. The lender must do two things. Elect to participate in the SBA's program. I am told it will open up on Wednesday, August 4th. So the lender has to say okay we are going to use it for borrowers that qualify. We're going to use the SBA's site to apply, not use our own site, and they have to have directed the borrower to go to the site. Secondly, the borrower's loan has to be for $150,000 or less because this is only going this is not going to process an application for the full 3508. Rather, it's going to be the simplified 3508 application that the SBA would start the process on. So if you do it, we go for that background. We go down that path. Now, the SBA does make clear that, you know, if a borrower has already gone through and started the process of applying on the lender's site, the lender is not to go into here and say, oh, sorry, guys, go restart again. The SBA's argument for doing this program is that they've discovered that a lot of lenders have been overwhelmed and they just don't have a system to process this paperwork either in paper form at the rate it's coming in or by being able to, you know, do it electronically. They just don't have the ability to set up such processes for smaller lenders. As well, they've noted that the banks are very aware that they have a 60-day time frame from the date they receive an application in order to be able to start the pro in order to be able to come to a decision. So they're thinking that you know, and so lenders are telling borrowers, you know, they're basically controlling the number of borrowers they will allow to apply. By sending out, you know, links back or invites, you can submit your application now at the rate under which they can process them. This is beginning to run us into a rock and hard place problem for a lot of borrowers because the time frame, the 10 month period from the end of the covered period during which you would would be able to not pay back the loan, even though you have not yet applied, is ending or has ended for many borrowers at least on the first draw PPP loans, ones that got it early. And that means that, you know, they still haven't been invited to apply, but in essence, they need to start making the payments. Now, one problem I see with this, though, is while the SBA mentions that, again, you still have to wait for the borrower to invite you to apply on the platform. So my first reaction is the 60-day rule still applies to the borrower, to the lender, so I'm not sure lenders are going to be any quicker going through this process be aware of it. The borrower him or herself does not have the choice to come to this platform and force the issue. Rather, the bank is still going to control when you can get in. As well, you cannot use this process in the following situations. Obviously, if you don't if the lender does not opt to use the process, if you borrowed from I don't know who, let's say Bank of America, and Bank of America elects not to use this process, which a bank like that very well may not because they already had the online application process in play. They've already used it, and so why would they want to convert at this date? They may just never opt in. Secondly, if your loan's greater than $150,000, obviously we're not letting you use this application process. Uh, If you don't agree with the data as provided by the SBA system of record, so the SBA is going to kind of bring up information about your loan. If you say that's wrong or information about you as a borrower and you say, no, 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 that's in error, then you're going to have to not go through this process. You'll have to go through another process to submit the application. Your, you cannot validate your identity on the platform. Now, they say, for example, there's an unreported change of ownership. I'm suspecting if there is KBA stuff on here, it may just be the same problem that we've run into when people are trying to electronically sign a return. If you're using that those options, the KBA-based options, you discover that some people can never make it work. In fact, I've discovered even under the relaxed uh, program we have now clients still find it very very difficult just to handle things like you know using the shared secret to get in to get access to you know the, the form for protecting their identity So not just nobody you know some tom dick and harry can't come by and download that well they have trouble understanding how to work that and do it so i could see some reasons otherwise And also said for any other reasons where the platform rejects the borrower's submission, you'll also have to do it. So for whatever reason you can't get in there, you will have to go ahead and go through the standard process. That's going to be the key coming forward from this point. So, you know, kind of be be aware of that. It is one of those things. It's one of those things that, that we will have to work with. So in any event, that makes it kind of fun. So we've got it next up we have the COVID revenue reduction score issue now this is going to be a little bit of a unique one and what it's going to do is try to drive this thing called a revenue reduction score and what the revenue reduction score does is it's what goes in and tries to figure out did you have a 25 percent drop in revenue if you are applying for a PPP2 loan as you're aware If you file for a PPP-2 loan, you are supposed to show a 25% reduction in revenue. What the SBA has done is contracted with a third party. Again, we don't know who that third party is, so that's one of the problems potentially we have here. So we don't really know who the third party is. But if they've done that, they've contracted with that. And what they're going to do is apparently, based on your industry, it might even be geographically, they're going to determine if the industry as a whole has tended to have this 25% reduction. If they have, then the bank can just elect to use that score. And again, it does appear to be a borrower election, or I should say a lender election, in order to confirm it. They don't have to go through your records to figure out if you had the 25% reduction. Now, if the score does not justify that, then the borrower will apparently be able to submit documentation to show that, okay, maybe while the average, whatever this might be, you know, type of operation didn't have this reduction, uh, you know, my, my client, let's say, did this sort of sale or sold this sort of retail sales. But they were in a theme park, and so the theme park was closed. So while their industry doesn't show it, you know they in particular do have a problem because they weren't allowed to operate or the theme park was operating at a reduced capacity. So there are unique factors. So it's not going to solve everybody, but it does give a score. And at least in theory, it appears that as long as your client meets that requirement, that in essence, you'll be able to get a quicker review. You won't have to spend as much time with the 25%. Now again, if your loan was more than 150, you had to submit that reduction in revenue information when you applied, so it's not going to help you there. But if you're below 150 and you have not submitted reduction information yet, and remember you really didn't have to if you're below 150, then you know, we're now going to allow you, we're going to allow the bank to use this method, which could theoretically get around the bank asking you to provide that documentation. You will still say you did. And let's be honest, nothing in here says that the SBA, if they examine your loan, cannot come back and say, okay, prove to us this 25% reduction. Finally, we did have a fix here. There is an appeals process. Uh, You know, let's say the SBA, the bank says, hmm, not, no, we, we don't think the loan should be forgiven in this amount. We think this amount's not qualified. The SBA says, yep, that's right. That could be up to 90 days from when the thing was granted. In theory, once the SBA makes that determination, we're going to be on the clock and have to start paying the loan back. Now the SBA says, if you timely file an appeal uh, with the SBA which is the Office of Hearings and Appeals. I guess I remember I think that's what OHA stands for. I have to remember what exactly that term stands for. Yep, Office of SBA, Office of Hearings and Appeals. That is what OHA stands for. Uh, if you file with them, then you don't have to pay. However, the quirk here is you as the borrower have to notify the lender you're making an appeal. The SBA is not going to notify the lender that you are making an appeal at that point. So, you're going to have to go through the notification process if you want the benefit of this. Okay, on to a little more standard tax issues. This will be the case of Zuhl versus Commissioner. This was a tax court bench opinion, docket number 5716195, issued on July 26. Now, this was a small tax court case. The bench opinion means it was essentially an oral opinion delivered from the bench, and which was then you know transcribed and Eventually published in written form. Just like though the summary opinions, you're not going to be able to rely, you know, you can't cite this as precedent elsewhere. It covers technically only this case, but it is an interesting analysis. This taxpayer had been employed and he also worked on some startup businesses while he was doing that. Now, eventually, he did quit his job and he started the Masters of Business Administration program. At MIT, which as you might guess is not going to be inexpensive, okay, for that purpose. So he's at MIT, he has quit his job, he is doing this. Now he says this was actually a trader business expense for him under 162A. And he says that because, you know, he says that he was in the trader business of being an entrepreneur, and these helped his entrepreneurial skills. Well, let's talk briefly about when you can deduct trade or business expenses. And this is 162A, specifically for education. And Regulation uh, 1.162-5 is where you're going to find the rules for deducting education expenses. So if you want to know where to find the rules, 1.162-5, go to the Regulation. It reads very straightforward. It's really not that tough. It may be fun to interpret it. uh, And that's where all the interesting stuff comes in when we get to tax court. But the basic rules are there. Essentially, generally, you can get a deduction for education expenses related to your trade or business, even if it leads to a degree. And I want to underline that because I know a whole lot of people who learned the rule. Think I've told you before? I hate people who try to memorize the rule without having any idea where the rule came from. Um, they memorize the rule that if you get a degree, you cannot claim a deduction for education expenses. No, the regulation specifically says, word for word, even if it leads to a degree or it may lead to a degree, you can still get the deduction. As long as two criteria are met, and you're not otherwise barred, so there's one of those rules. So the first thing you got to show is that whatever you're being trained on maintains or improves the skills required by this individual in their trade or business. Now, key component there, you've got to have a trader business already. That's why when you maybe graduated from college, you know, you got out there, you got your accounting degree and you you know then said man i got all this tuition now to pay you know well I'll, I'll just deduct it right my education expenses now now it's time to pay up so i'm going to deduct those no because you didn't have a trader business prior to that point and the trader business has to be something that would improve it and no you know do, doing that work at mcdonald's really wasn't your trader bit really fine it may have been a trader business but it wasn't really related to your accounting degree so one going to help you. The other way is if it meets the express requirements of the employer or requirements of the law regulations imposed as a condition to a retention by the individual of an established employment relationship status or rate of compensation. For instance, the continuing education fees you pay as a CPA or EA or attorney. the stuff you pay for continuing education, bingo, deductible because it meets the second prong. It's education, and it is required to maintain your skill set. And if you go beyond the hours that are required, then you go back to number one, which is it maintains or improves your skills. So that's the basic issue that comes into this. However, there is a caveat here. They said even if you meet those conditions, you still will be disallowed the deduction if one of two things are true. The education meets the minimum education requirements for qualification in the trader business. So, again, let's go back to the CPA. In most states, I think every state at this point, in order to get a cert, to be a certified public accountant, you must have so many hours and, in many cases, possess a, possess a degree uh, you know, from an institution of higher learning in specific topics. That is minimum re- education requirements. The education to get your accounting degree as a CPA it meets minimum requirements. The cost normally of getting your law degree, if you're an attorney, meets the minimum educational requirements. The cost of your exam study, you know, to figure out how to pass the CPA exam, or EA exam, or the bar exam, obviously. That, that's kind of getting into this to qualify you for a new trader business. That's the second point here. If the education program will qualify you for a new trader business, CPA exam prep review qualifies you for that CPA certificate. Those certificates generally are considered, not always, because it's not a complete bar, but generally, once you're licensed as a CPA there, or you're licensed as an EA, to be honest, there are certain things you can now do right representation is something that's there in tax as a cpa in most cases doing audits certainly at least some audits are only open to cpas and in many states audits are only open to cpas you if you're not a cpa you cannot perform an audit so that means that will be barred there now in this case the irs was saying well you know this this doesn't really qualify and they're saying, well, you know, it had nothing to do with his prior work in a financial firm, you know, his, his training for entrepreneurial skills. And they claimed he was not an entrepreneur. However, the tax court disagreed. In fact, what the tax court told us was that, you know, essentially, this did not qualify him for a brand new trader business. He was already in the trader business of being an entrepreneur. So the skill set was being built. And also, this has been before, the IRS has fought this MBA issue before and they tend to lose. If somebody's already in business, the hitch with the MBA degree is it is very general and generic, right? There really aren't many cases where, if you think about it, in the general purpose, yes, there are jobs that will ask you to have an MBA. But in terms of basic requirements in the world, no, MBA primarily improves your Skills, so you know it helps you deal with skills that are that you're already using in business. So MBAs are interesting. There are losing cases quite often. They lose because again they never really had a trader business before they went for the MBA, and that that's going to always fail. But MBAs have won quite often. In fact, a few years ago we had a nurse. We had a case where a nurse got an MBA. And even though her job, you know, seemed to require it to be there, she was already promoted without it in the past. So it would improve it, and it wasn't a requirement to keep the job. So, yeah, you know, it's like even though they might put that in the app, you know, saying requirements when they put out the job, the court found they really didn't enforce that. She was moved up into it without it because of her skills. And so this was an improvement, not not really a minimum job requirement. But that goes back a while. That, that old case has been around a while. In fact, I need to go try to find that one again, because I'm sure somebody will ask about it. We'll see if anybody, yeah, I hope I could find it. We'd have to see. I thought I wrote about it, but we'd have to see. Next up, the IRS made some changes to the paid leave rules that we started with the Families First Coronavirus um, Relief Act back in very early March of 2020. So this is on the IRS webpage, their FAQs, which is entitled, nearly as long as the SBA does for regs, uh, Tax Credits for Paid Leave Under the American Rescue Plan Act of 2021, Determining the Amount of the Tax Credit for Qualified Sick Leave. This is question 27A is where you're going to find this. As you may be aware, you might have heard a little bit about the Delta variant the last couple of weeks, you know. Been on the news, you might have heard something about it. And, you know, and the fact that the vaccination, uh, you know, vaccination levels seem to have kind of plateaued out, that we're not seeing rapid uptake anymore. So, again, the IRS and Health Human Services, etc., are getting into this to try to, at least on paper, remove some of the reasons why somebody might not have been vaccinated. And so what they're going to do now is they will allow employers to receive a tax credit equal to two-thirds of the normal rate of pay of the person but no lower than the minimum wage rate for that person for hours that person is given paid leave for either accompanying individuals that bear the proper relationship not meaning blood relative but member of household this gets a little messy as to who the parties have a sufficient tie to the person and actually the regime goes down to having a reasonable expectation you know that this person would care for you so it's kind of a fuzzy definition but that that's fine clearly though if somebody's going back to take their parents right their kids Um, whoever to be vaccinated, we can give them paid leave time for that and we will get a credit equal to two-thirds of their wages or if two-thirds is less than minimum wage, then we get the credit equal to minimum wage for those people, right? As well, if they have to take time off to care for those same individuals who may have had some sort of reaction to the vaccination and they're now caring for those people, they can get it. Now remember, this is still part of the stand of the basic FFCRA leave. That means it's going to run from April 1st to the end of September, right? That was the time period covered by this. And obviously, because we just announced this now, for practical purposes, it's going to run from, you know, the last couple of days of July, from July 29th through September, you know, through the end of September. So for about two months at this point, we're going to do it it does mean that you have a maximum of 10 days for all of these leave categories during that period. You know, the 10 days are the max. Now, one thing to remember is though, at least for the two thirds issues, right, you can get to two thirds. uh, We can count part of that as the longer term 10 week qualified family leave for things that impact the employee themselves. And, does not appear this works, although it's not clear for that. But that that could add a number of weeks there. But if somebody, it appears right now, if somebody had been, let's say, out for two weeks because they have COVID, now they're saying, uh-oh, maybe I should get, you know, maybe, maybe my teenage kid should be de- vaccinated because this was really bad. Uh, and they do take them. Well, the problem is they burned their 10 days. So, wouldn't work in that case but this is out there if the employer wants to do this this is a way of getting a subsidy so you should probably inform your clients about the fact that this is out there if they are so inclined to do it next up we have chief counsel email 2021-29012 which came out on july 23rd of 2021 now this relates to the bipartisan budget act centralized partnership audit Regime that took effect in 2017, kind of, and you know, or 2018 years. I've got to remember my year right, but anyway, it was delayed effective date, and it ended up not really taking effect because we had sort of a waiver, quasi waiver for a while in 2019. Uh, for partnerships, and then we had COVID. They waived things somewhat, some more. So now we're finally starting to see it, though, really happen. This is in place. Now, what the BBA program does is it says, here's the general rule. If your partnership is examined, IRS examines, or, and this is where CPAs miss this one, or you attempt to revise a previously filed partnership return, the way that works by default is that we have a uh, we compute the net adjustment. Let's say there's 100,000 more income in the partnership. We would then compute based on the highest individual marginal rates, 37% right now. We would take 37%. So if it's $100,000 adjustment, we would have a $37,000 bill due to the partnership plus penalties and interest that the partnership would pay. That is the default. Now, there are ways out of that default. And if you are what used to be the small partnerships that got out of TEFRA, uh, except we're going to expand that so it's up to issuing 100 K-1s, you are allowed to opt out. Now, under TEFRA, remember, you had to opt in if you were a small partnership with 10 or fewer partners, and they were individuals, et cetera. Now, the issue is, no, you're in unless you opt out. So you're stuck with what I just mentioned, and what that means is, okay, we do that. Now here's what's even worse, because this one can't create a problem, because if I do that, I can elect to do what's called a pushout, which means I can go back and say, well, uh, the partners are going to pay this tax, so we're going to tell them how much of adjustment there is. Now they still won't be able to go back and amend their prior returns, but rather what they can do, or what they will then do, not can, they have to, if we like push out is that they will report this on their uh, return. They'll they'll report the net tax. They'll compute the tax that would have been due back in that year, plus penalties, plus interest, and then they will report that as a tax on the next upcoming year's return. Whatever, Whatever return there is that's going to be filed for the year in which they receive this notice of the push-out, the push-out elections made. If we do have an IRS exam, Then partners actually can amend earlier returns in line with the exam, and there's a little messy there, but they can pull theirs out. But if you are revising the return, which has to be done under administrative adjustment requests, we do not have the option to allow partners to amend. All we have is this push-out adjustment. Where that becomes a problem is, what if we're not got extra income, but we have less income? In that case, the partner, again, on a push-out goes back, and you have to push that out. They go back, they recompute Their income, you know, they say, hey, I would have paid $20,000 less in tax. Okay, great. So now for 2021, because this is when we actually did this, discovered it, and issued the notices to the partners. Well, they're going to get a $21,000 tax credit. Okay, that's good. Reduce this year's tax. Except what happens if in 2021, they don't owe $21,000 in total federal tax. They only owe $5,000. Well, they won't pay any federal tax this year. That's true. but The other $16,000 of credit is lost permanently. Okay, So opting out is big and can be very big both ways. So we'll talk about this here. And there are complications if you don't opt out as well. Just things get messy. So if you're eligible to opt out, which means you issue less than 100K1s, all partners are individuals, um, corporations, Right, including S corporations. Although, with S corporations, you have to look through to see, you have to add how many K1s the S corporation issues to your K1s, and still remember to count the S corporation as a partner plus each of its shareholders. So, every S corporation by definition will be a minimum of two partners, two K1s, you know, and make that done. Now, the problem is if anybody holds their interest in a single member LLC or in a grant or trust. You can't opt out. Okay. But if you're eligible, that's only half the game. You also have to actually opt out on the original return. You cannot do this on an amended return. It must be on the timely filed original return. Okay. That's the problem with BBA. Now let's talk about one of the specific issues. Okay. Well, we've gone through that. They came back in. They want to do this adjustment. 100000 extra income. None of our partners, turns out all of our partners, you know, in essence, they had huge amounts of unused itemized deductions. None of them would have paid tax in 2018 had we, you know, properly reported that extra 100000 of income. So we want to tell the IRS, well, you know, hey, I know you got that adjustment, but really it would have made no difference back then. So can't you take that item out of the adjustment? And this email says that's not relevant. Again, we assume a 37% rate on that positive adjustment. And there are ways to reduce it, and that's for a whole course on this. And if this right now is something you've never heard of, I strongly suggest you get a course that deals with the Bipartisan Budget uh, Act if you do any partnership returns. Because you are heading toward a big problem if you don't understand it. Because the minute you need to revise a return, you've got a problem coming, and just realize that. But the fact no partner would have paid tax does not mean the IRS takes that out of the adjustment. It does not mean you can reduce the adjustment by giving the IRS information to that effect. You would have to do a push out. It's not relevant in computing the IRS. The idea of this makes very easy for the IRS. Hundred thousand adjustment built for thirty-seven thousand plus interest plus tax. That's it. Done. If you don't want, let's say, every partner individual and none of the income's capital gain. That adjustment is done. Your only way out of $37,000 is to do the push-out. And if your client, you know, the partners are whining about having to do the push-out. They don't want to do it. They want the partnership to take care of this. Partners have got to pay $37,000 plus penalty and interest. Even though the partners themselves would pay nothing. That's how it works. This is not a defense. So be aware of that. So... If, as I said, the big reason for including this is if you do not know what the Bipartisan Budget Act is and how it works on partnership exams, you probably need to go learn. Next up, the Second Circuit. This is just remind- talking about a reversal of a case we discussed at the end of 2019. This is the case now labeled Emily Wilson as Executrix of the Estate of Joseph A. Wilson versus United States of America for the Joseph Wilson Estate. So, It's always fun to follow these cases because courts of appeals tend to give the name of the executor, uh, while lower tax court especially tends to give the name of the estate. So it's always a little messy getting these down. But again, the end of July, this is case number 20-603 from the Second Circuit Court of Appeals on July the 28th. This was a case we discussed in 2019 for somebody who would establish an offshore trust So they effectively were both, they were the owner, the trustee, beneficiary, effectively owner, beneficiary, et cetera, of the trust. And under the foreign trust reporting, there are obligations for an owner to report the existence of the trust, right, in various situations. And there is a requirement for the beneficiary to report distributions received from a foreign trust, even if they're not the owner of the trust, right? They're not the owner of the trust, but they... You know they they get this secondary report. Now in the original case, the trial court held, and we discussed it back then, that based on how the provision is written under sections 6667 uh, and 6048, under 6677, 6048, how they're written, the court had decided that if you add in the same year a liability for both the five percent penalty for failure to you know, report the existence of the trust, 5% of the ending balance, and the 35% penalty was imposed on you as a beneficiary who received a distribution and you failed to file the forms, the 3520, 3520 3520-A, you know, that only the 5% penalty applied. However, the Court of Appeals did not agree with that. In fact, they were rather insistent that was not what happened, right? they said they said based on the plain reading of the law that both taxes applied right you you couldn't actually do it one of the key things that the original trial court had done was say was effectively pay a lot of attention that the maximum amount that could be the report gross reportable amount you know had to be limited to you know certain amounts no more than 5% of the gross reportable amount was what the penalty could be uh, for the owner of the trust well the court said look gross reportable amount is two different things you know when it was referencing that it was talking about the value of the trust when it was referencing it earlier in another section the reportable amount was a distribution the court said it uh, it violates the plain language of the statute to limit it to 5% and remember at the end of the year that trust had nothing in it so 5% of nothing was nothing so effectively if that position held the trust got out of you know we didn't have any problems here everything was fine that's how it did well the court disallowed that the course also went through other instructions An interesting discussion here about the fact that you know the trial court seemed to spend a lot of time on the instructions to the 3520 and 3528 and the and the appellate court said doesn't really matter what those say if they're if they are not in line with the plain language of the statute, which the court held there was no ambiguity according to the Court of Appeals, it doesn't matter what the instructions said. It doesn't matter that you miss it, you know, that that they may have been, in your view, misleading, and, you know, it may have indicated that really the IRS position was that only the one penalty applied. The court felt that Nope, you can't do that. First thing is, we think you're, misleading, you're misreading the instructions. But secondly, even if they did, it can't go against the plain language of the law. So bottom line, now suddenly the estate owes because Joseph failed to file this, but then he died. So the estate does owe the entire 35% due on the distribution, not 5% of nothing, which is what they had gotten at the original trial court. So, yeah, it's one of those things. Well, like I said, we are going to be getting back to some coursework and, uh, you know, whatever the status may be. And as I know, with COVID, things are always up in the air. So I'm not about to guarantee that by the 19th of August, uh, things won't change. Except I can probably say pretty solidly that certainly we'll be webcasting, if nothing else. And I suspect we will be in person because that's I've had no different yet. But whatever it is, I am going to be doing courses now. So we're going to talk about this. Income taxation of trusts and estates will be the first one. On the 19th, Arizona Society, again, webcast or the Phoenix office. Certainly that's our plan. On August 20th, assisting the survivors, the CPA's role in the seeds of the state. Same structure, eight hour course, and again, the same two options. And finally, on the 21st, partnership and LLC taxation advanced issues, where we will cover the bipartisan budget act. So you know, exam rules. And so if you're not up to speed on that on the 21st, you can get up to speed on that. So we're going to remind you of that. So that's kind of one of those big things. Because again, you know, I have just hit it too many times in too many discussion forums where you mean I now have to, yeah, now you have to do it that way. Well, that's not right. And it's like, well, you could have opted out, but we're too late now. So yeah, you got to do it that way. So yeah, we'll talk about it there. So, again, we're doing that. Look at those. Again, continuing education coming in. Uh, if there are major provisions uh, in the infrastructure bill that have a tax impact, we might end up doing an additional course on that. But if all we've got is what I understand we have for now, I suspect we'll roll that into whatever gets put in the reconciliation bill, and I'll be probably looking at doing updates once once the reconciliation bill is probably assuming it passes. We'll go out with a lot more tax provisions will probably be what we'll look at there. But certainly we'll at least discuss next week if that gets past what the cryptocurrency issues are there. Otherwise, you know, Uh, Take care. Hopefully, you'll have a good week. We'll be talking to you here next week about whatever happens in the area of taxes. So, you know, we'll talk about a few things there. We may have at least a discussion of cryptocurrency information reporting, when it will happen, and what the impact might be, uh, assuming the infrastructure bill moves forward. And I suspect if it's going to go through, it's going to go through this week because Congress really, really, really wants to be out of town for the August break. And I think they really want this infrastructure thing done. So, we'll see what goes on there. So, in essence, keep up, watch what's happening. We'll see you here next week for more with current federal tax developments.